I'm Greg Berard, and welcome to my podcast on living a full life. It's become my mission to live an amazing life, to be the best version of myself that I can be, and to inspire others to be the best versions of themselves, and to create the lives that they want to live. This podcast is a narrative of my own personal journey, along with rich and meaningful conversations with truly successful people, exploring how to build great wealth while maintaining balance for family, love, health, parenting, purpose, and passion. So please join me. Let's take this journey together to uncover what it really means to live a full life. Before we get started, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to help support it, the best way to do so is to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may listen to podcasts. Additionally, I'd love to connect with you directly. Please visit me at gregberard.com. That's G-R-E-G-B-E-R-A-R-D.com and sign up for my newsletter. Not only will you be up to date with my latest podcasts and guests, but you'll also receive my personal blog, shared resources, and other media that I plan on releasing over time. The email is also my personal email address, so I'm happy to connect with you directly. Without further ado, please enjoy this podcast on living a full life. My guest today is one of my oldest friends, Jay Ross. His real name is Justin Ross, and that is probably how most people know him, but I only know him as Jay. This interview happened in a very serendipitous way. We were just having our sort of normal, friendly catch-up calls, and I told him about the podcast. We got to very deep and super philosophical conversation, and then we both came to the conclusion that Jay just needed to be on the podcast. Besides being one of my closest friends, he's also one of the most unique individuals I know. But more importantly, his story is exactly the type of story that I look to share and learn from during these interviews. In pure Jay fashion, the road to where he is today, it wasn't always smooth. Jay lost an academic scholarship and dropped out of college to join the army uh, after 9-11. And when he returned home to start his life, he came back confused and lost and really worried that many of his friends had careers and homes and families. And, and he was sort of starting from, from a very late perspective. And, and he thought about becoming a doctor, but didn't want to become a 40-year-old doctor. And through some very good advice from Mama Ross, she said, look, you're going to be 40 no matter what. It's your choice of who you want to be. So Jay did some soul searching and he decided to become a doctor, rejoin the army. And now he spends his days as a clinician, helping soldiers and training future army medics. And in his nights, he spends with his loving family in a deeply loving marriage and has a great time with his beautiful son. We reminisce as old friends do, uh, but we also go deep on topics such as choosing what it is that you really want in life and then going out and getting it. We talk about expectations versus potential. We speak about what makes his marriage special and how he thinks about presence and mindfulness and how he does his best to live as the Costa Ricans say, pura vida. I had so much fun talking with Jay and I, I think it really just goes to show you that you can still learn so much from someone that you think you already know so deeply and so well. And, and more importantly, I think I, I learned from Jay that it just doesn't matter when you start your journey. You could be 20 or you could be 60. You have potential inside you and you can always become the person that you are meant to be. In the words of Mama Ross, you're going to be 40 one day or 50 or 60. Who do you want to be? The choice is yours. So without further ado, please enjoy this incredibly wide-ranging conversation with my friend, Jay Ross. So, Jay. Greg. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I, congratulations again on your new venture. And yeah, it's a pretty exciting thing to do to kind of move forward into a new new realm. Yeah, and this this sort of happened very happenstance. Like you and I were just having a sort of a, a normal catch up, which we we catch up probably not as often as we should. But like uh, we were just having a quick catch up call. I, I informed you of what I was doing, and then we we went down a rabbit hole of like an hour, Easily. hour and a half long philosophical conversation about everything and anything. And and we were just like, we need to have this recorded. We need to we need to do this on on recording. As- as only like two long-term friends can do, like where you really can just kind of surf a bunch of topics and just go deep. And you were telling me about your new venture and and we kind of talked about my little circuitous route. I'm sure your guests probably have no idea who I am. So we'll, and we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. We're gonna explore all this. Before we start though, okay. I thought, well, we are starting, but before we go deep into into Jay. I thought it might be fun for you and I and for the people listening to give a little context of how long you and I have known each other by kind of recounting the story of how we met. And I'm wondering if your memory of it is different from mine. I know. I, I can remember an exact moment. Okay. So not like how we met, but our first real like interaction. Okay. Do you remember? what? What's your memory of that interaction? My memory would be that we were in... I want to say sixth grade, because we had already gone to elementary school together, but we weren't in the same class and we didn't really know each other. But my recollection was that we were, and I forget why, but the issue of like what you enjoy came up. It was like, you know, sixth grade, kind of a homeroom thing. And we both liked the same thing. And if I recall correctly, it was the main hockey team because we were both interested in like college hockey after a frozen four one year. And that's my, that was like the first time we made eye contact. Like, oh my gosh, someone else who knows and likes the same thing as me. This is crazy. And I think that was it. And then we started playing, you know, started playing hockey together and, um, you know, doing a lot of things together. My mm-hmm. goodness. I think when you're, when you're in sixth grade, like everything just kind of melds together. I and mean, you're just starting middle school and uh, you get exposed to like all these different people. But I think that was it for me. That's what the first thing I remember. That's so funny. I my memory is different, very different. I okay. do remember that. I remember sitting in that makeshift classroom. It was in one like it was like in a bunker. Yeah, it was like a cubicle, like a bunk, like a trailer. Yeah, exactly. Like a temporary classroom for some reason where they I think they it was like something where they start placing you where you're supposed to be in, in middle school or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was some weird thing. Maybe it was just homeroom. I don't know. But I, I do remember exactly that talking about Maine hockey and liking Paul Korea and yeah. and having connection there. But my first memory of you, I think, Uh-oh. was in fifth grade. Uh oh. When I moved to Calabasas. <laughs> okay. And it, it's more embarrassing for me than it is for you. I was I've never been known, you know, when we were growing up, as you'll remember, as a as a good sport. I got upset losing at games and hockey and stuff like that a little okay. bit when I was younger. And I remember playing roller hockey with you at Chaparral, really not knowing you, having seen you in school, not knowing you, and us getting into a big argument. Well, really, <laughs> me, really, it was really me getting into an argument and you laughing like you're doing now, like thinking this is ridiculous. Like, what's like, we're just playing hockey and me getting really serious about it and you just cracking up. And, and like, I just wanted to fight you. Oh, God. And, uh, you would have kicked my ass. So and- <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> and and the reason I'm laughing isn't because I'm laughing at you. It's because another one of our close friends uh, that, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but like he ended up becoming one of my closest friends. 
the first time I met him was playing hockey at Chaparral, and I tried to fight him. <laughs> and I remember, I remember all the other people we used to skate with be like, "Dude, you don't know this guy. He's really nice. You don't like." <laughs> Jay, you're, you're getting you're, you're too serious, and I think that's hilarious. That um, you know, two of my closest friends who've lasted you know 30 years now or something basically uh, tried to fight. Start off on the <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it, that's great though? Because and this I've always believed this, always believed this. You you can only fight with someone you truly love. Like if there's no passion, if you have if you literally have no feeling towards someone, how could they ever make you mad enough to want to fight them? You've yeah. got to really butt heads. You've got to really care to fight <laughs> for something that you 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 care about. And in those days, when you're that young, I mean, everything's worth uh, fighting over. But we also, it was worth being around each other. Mm-hmm. We had fun, so that's funny. I did not remember that. <laughs> you and I were both very uh, passionate when it came to just about everything in those days. So I'm not surprised that there was a little animosity in the beginning. Yeah, I think it, it's just, um, and and this actually goes into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. But there's just sort of a, an intensity when you're younger about everything. about everything that you sort of do. I we, I think you see it. I see it with your kid. I see it with with Sloan a lot. Like you get frustrated at the littlest things that you think you should be able to do. Um, mm-hmm. So there's probably just some sort of intensity of of as you as you are growing up, you you're trying so hard to do some of the things that you feel like you should be able to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's something with that, but it's not a topic we need to dwell on or philosophize about, but I actually, it leads into the next question I wanted to ask you, which was for years, I, you were always an intense guy. You you put pressure on yourself academically. Yeah. You excelled academically, excelled at a lot of things that you did. And I always thought for some reason that, that it was your parents that put that pressure on you. And then your dad once told me, he like laughed. He's like, are you kidding me? It's like, that was all Jay. Yeah. And where does that intensity come from? Because it's not, it's not gone away over the years. <laughs> right. And I, I think you, once you become a parent, you realize this really quickly. You think that, you know, I, I always thought that I was the product of my parents or the product of my generation or the product of my environment. And it wasn't until I had my son that I realized, nope, he has his own personality from day one no amount of my personality is trickling in when he's an infant and has literally four emotions like that compass of like which one of those emotions is pulling it in more than the other ones like that's set right so I, I i have come to understand that that intensity was always there even when i was a kid and i've always had a really strong moral compass like intrinsic desire to like, this is what I think the right thing to do is, and I'm going to do it. It was always a, a thing of action, right? Like, oh, I believe in getting a good grade on this test. Like, I don't need anyone to tell me to study. Mm-hmm. But if I thought it was bogus, you've probably seen me do this too, where I'd be really dismissive of someone, especially people in a position of authority. I had a real big problem with people in a position of authority because if I, if I didn't agree with <laughs> position of authority... I didn't care what you told me. If I didn't believe in the cause, I wasn't going to do it. But if I believed in it strong, like even a little bit, it was, like you said, very, very intense. You know, I could, I could play hockey with you guys for 12 hours straight and go home and study for another six hours straight before bed because I actually, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And it was always that way. It's always been that way for me. And it's still to this day been that way. I think 
if COVID has taught me nothing else, it's that it's all those little personality things in us, those ticks. When you remove all this external stimuli, those real personality traits kind of start to get to the surface again, and, and you can either embrace them or not. For me, I definitely embraced some things, uh, nerded out on some <laughs> cooking. I nerded out on some reading that I was interested in. But for the most part, you know, that intensity comes in bunches, right? The, the hard part is balancing the intensity of like following what, what you think is right and kind of the environment around you of what they want you to do. That has always been a trial for me. Like if you get if you get pulled in too many directions, you're never going to give that one thing that matters to you the real intensity it deserves. But some people find a way. Some people just, hey, I'm gonna. I could be at the end of a 14 day or hour workday, but man, I really care about this podcast, or I care about this other side thing that really refills fills my cup internally. Like you're gonna prioritize that somehow. If you really want it, you'll do it. If you if it's an external stimulus, you're just not going to do it. And that was what it always was for me. If it's external, I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Always. It's always been that way. Awesome. Can you think of anything in our lives, and, and I mean like the general Western progression of you go to elementary school, you go to high school, maybe you go to college, or maybe you get a job, maybe you start a career, like all these external expectations, how many of them have ever been that transition point where you're like, oh, I found myself? No, really? I get to go to college now? This is like the most, no, you just, nothing external has ever done it for me. It's always been, I'm exposed to something new or I'm exposed to something that triggers either a memory or something nostalgic to me. And I'm like, no, I really want to, I want to go deep. I want to get, I want to nerd out, you know, medicine for me, hockey, everything. It's always been that way. Yeah. I mean, can you think of anything external in your life? that has changed your life? Like something that somebody else put on you, like a job or a, I just can't. I mean, those experiences are experiences, right? I mean, like you, mm-hmm. you can learn some things from them, but yeah, anything of real value sort of happens internally, right? Like you, you fall, you fall in love with a sport like hockey. It didn't happen because you were, you know, introduced to it in school, but you had to be introduced to it, especially being in California, right? Like we had to see Gretzky, come to California and be like, what the heck's this sport? And, um, and then go, Oh, this is, this is cool. I want to, I want to play this. And so you, you kind of, I mean, as a kid, you kind of, it's good to be introduced to things, I think, but, but yeah, I mean, I think I understand really what the heart of what you're kind of getting at is it runs a little bit deeper and, and it's, it's just, we try to find all these life answers outside of us when really it's mm-hmm. all sort of in there. It's kind of like what you said with your son, like that sort of compass is already there. It's like what you said with you, you had this moral compass to, to do what it was that you felt was sort of right to do. And you, and you went and did it. And for me too, and I talk about on the podcast, like the transformation that I've experienced in the last six, six, seven months has been just unbelievable. And it's all because I, I started to get to know me. Mm-hmm. You asked yourself hard questions, right? You look inward. Yeah. I, yeah. Inward. And I stopped, I stopped looking outside to figure out what was going on inside. Mm-hmm. The, the journey of you is like, you're a ball of clay. <laughs> you are not a finished product. And once, once I accepted that, oh my gosh, every interaction with your environment, every person you ever meet for the rest of your life can scrape that clay. It can 
lightly touch that clay, it, it, clay, it can push a fingerprint in there. Like if you start to think of yourself as as an unfinished product, then then every day becomes a much more fun experience. And like that experiential learning that you're talking about, I think it it's that's when you start to pay attention. But the idea that you're a finished product or that things are going to come from the outside and teach you, I, I just reject that fully. I always have. I've always had a distaste for people that say things like no regrets and, you know, you're great just the way you are. It's like, really? Are you sure? Are you sure? Because maybe you need to reflect on some of the decisions that you've made and maybe you, maybe your ball of clay is not as finely detailed as you think it is. So I've all, but I've always thought that I've all, I've always been living that idea, that kind of stoic idea of like, nature is nature, right? You are yourself. And until you figure out who you are and still ask yourself some really hard questions, you're never going to live your nature. And you're happiest when you are actually living within your nature, like that truest thing to yourself. And it's okay to change over time. We all change. But but there's something internal to you that makes you not unique, but you have to actually live your natural state and like and be yourself before you can really be happy. You can never be living some external idea of yourself. It's got to be your idea of who you are. And if you're not making it, <laughs> if you're falling short of that expectation of yourself, it's probably because your expectations are wrong, not because, or your interpretation of yourself is wrong. And I'm not sure when I really started contemplating that, but it was probably pretty young. I think I was I was an old soul to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, I think you and I had that in common a little bit. I do want to take a step back actually and, sure. and this sort of your sort of moral compass. When I say moral compass, I don't mean like a right or wrong. I mean more of like a guiding Sure. Something that guided my decisions. And and let's be clear, uh it was not tuned correctly <laughs> for many years. So let's not pretend like I was some goody two shoes. I I had my I had my crazy moments and my you know, incorrect perceptions of the world. And those as a young man kind of lead you down some bad actions, but you learn from them. Let's talk about that. Sure. Let's talk about joining the army. Yeah. And what sort of led to, so you go, you have a a successful high school career. I imagine that. Academically. Sure. You get a, a scholarship to a difficult school to get into USC. Yes. Academically. Yes. And uh, and then I spent most of my time playing hockey and doing all the things that young men do when they're away from their family and, and lose that sort of central guidance that your parents give you when you're living in your parents' home. So I partied a lot. I did all the things young men do when they're you know young and being led by their hormones. And I, I definitely got away from all those things that I really valued about myself. Right, I, I loved having a critical mind and being able to participate in you know theater and and academics and doing all these fun things. And I think in college, you just I was a young man who did not have a good sense of responsibility and consequence, and I made a lot of mistakes and I, I paid the price for it. But by the time I joined the army, it was it was a good year after nine eleven. I'm not going to pretend like I, you know, had some patriotic response to to 9-11. I was in college. My roommate woke me up. I remember it very distinctly. And uh, he he ran in and woke us up and we watched on TV and horror just like everybody else. I went to work that day. It was surreal. But, you know, I stayed in school for another 
six months after that before you know dropping out and, and joining the army. A lot of people over the years ask that question, why did you join the army? And one thing that has that has struck me more than anything else is how much that answer changed over the years. Partly because you don't remember yourself over time, right? I, I mean, our, our memory of meeting each other. Yeah. <laughs> our, can you can you really remember what you were thinking or what you were like at a certain age? You know, if you look back and read a diary of yourself from when you were eighteen, you'd be embarrassed. You'd be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I thought this." You're you're a different person now. You're not even the same man. I don't remember who said like, "If you, no man can step in the same river twice," because it's either not the same. Like you step in the water, you step out of the water. The water that hit you initially is downstream and you're a different person too. So like we change over time. We accept this. But my answer about joining the army changed so much over time that I look back at that initial answer and I don't want to I don't want to feel bad about it or ashamed about it. So I'll just tell you what the initial answer was and I'll I'll try to remember how that answer changed over time. The first answer that I can recall would be that I had a very strong urge to support the men and women that were actually going overseas because I actually did believe in it at that time. I didn't, I wasn't a warfaring person. I wasn't, I had no anger. I had no real political ideals about it. It was more a sense of I wanted to help. And I felt, and, and this, this is the only thing I really remember clearly about what I felt back then. It was that if I didn't do it now, I would regret it. Hmm. Um, I would regret it in the sense that you have an opportunity to kind of be part of something bigger than yourself. And if you have a strong feeling, you should act on it. You shouldn't just contemplate it. And at that time, I was like, gosh, I'm really not doing great in school. I haven't met the expectations that maybe I put on myself when I went to college. And this might be an opportunity to realize that potential. But more than that, it was an opportunity to say, you know what, for once I'm going to act on something that if I didn't now, I might regret it later. Because I'd already seen a couple years of college slip away with really not much to show for it. Mm-hmm. So that was, my, that was my first real answer that I can remember. There might have been one before that, but that's the one that stuck in my brain. The one that I probably told more people than, than not. And then over time, what, what, what amazed me was that once I got my foot in the door and once I was part of it, I think that I changed a lot, a whole lot and became a much more mature young man, a much more, I understood consequence now, right? You, you get in trouble, you get group punishment. For someone who's already had a couple years of college versus some 18-year-olds coming out of high school in the army, like that was, was very apparent to me that there was a big difference between the young ones and the, the ones who'd had a little life experience first. So my answer changed over time. And that to me has meant a lot because I got out of the army and went back in. I'm still active duty right now. The reason I came in this time was very different. I have no, there's no wool curtain. There's no propaganda. I know what I'm getting myself into, right? <laughs> I know that there's some bureaucratic nonsense. And I know that there's some issues uh, in terms of, you know, the political climate. And you can't really avoid that as and I'm an officer now, I'm not enlisted. Uh, and that has its own pros and cons. But I, I'm not as naive, that's for sure. So my answer now would be that, you know, why did you want to come back in? Well, that one's actually, that answer has not changed. The answer was, I thought I could do more as a doctor than I could as a medic. That's why I got out initially. That's why I went to medical school. That's why I came back in. And I firmly believe that I am doing exactly what I set out to do when I left the army, which was 
13 years ago now. Wow. I left, I could be, I could be well on my path to do something else, but I got out 13 years ago when I came back in and that answer didn't change. And I, I, the, what's interesting about that is how often do our goals change? Like so often. And yet I'm finally, and this, this, I think this is why we, why you wanted to talk to me is because I'm finally living the life that I said I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like I finally am doing what I always wanted to do. I'm actually meeting a goal. And that is extraordinarily fulfilling on a day-to-day basis. I've never been this happy in my life. We're, we're going to talk more about that. But before we get to what you're doing now, mm-hmm. let's take a step back. You're out of the army. Mm-hmm. Um, you did how many tours? Three. Three tours as a ranger medic. Yes. With company. Sure. I was a, I went to the special operations combat medic school. And then I was assigned to the 2nd Ranger Battalion out of Fort Lewis. I did three combat tours as a medic. I was a, just a line guy in ACO, which is, you know, it's a pretty small all-male unit in special operations. We do mostly direct action stuff. None of this is secretive. I mean, this is, this is all pretty well-known stuff. But obviously, I can't talk about um, some of the missions I was on. I can't talk about the majority of, you know, anything in terms of operational stuff. but. For the most part, it was I was in charge of all the medical care for about fifty rangers when I was deployed, and then back in garrison when we were home. It was a lot of training, almost nonstop. I was essentially a line guy, and then once it got to the point where I, had, I think on a on a personal level, figured out like, hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna learn any more medicine at this point. The next promotion is essentially getting more administrative, and I felt like that wasn't going to be good enough for me. I decided to get out at that point and and try to go to medical school. Okay, so now you're you now you're out mm-hmm. of of active duty. You come home. How old are you at this point? Twenty seven when I got out, and then yeah, it was December two thousand seven when I left active duty, and I was in the reserves to kind of finish up school. Okay, so so you come out. You're twenty seven years old. Mm-hmm. And we kind of talk about this. We spoke about this a little bit. We've spoken about this before in the past and, and a sure. little bit all last week. But so you're 27. Your friends are, a lot of your friends are married. Some of them mm-hmm. have kids. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You come home from the army at 27 years old and you're kind of starting from scratch. Yeah. And what's like, what's going on in Jay's life at this point? I know where you're going with this. This was a, this was a dark patch, right? It was very, I felt really unaccomplished. You know, all my friends had careers, they had jobs, they had apartments, they had nice things, they had multiple pairs of jeans. You know, I <laughs> I was <laughs> you know, I had I had one pair of shoes. I was struggling to find any real meaning in my day to day because first of all, coming back to Southern California might not have been the best decision for me. Right. But I was so stubborn that I thought no, I got to finish what I started. I got to go get my degree from where I started. I'm not I'm not going to drop out of school and then fail. Like it was a very personal failure to even imagine not finishing where I started. So I went back to USC, but before I did that, I I took the uh, initiative and said, "You know what? I'm just going to do some community college classes over summer to get my brain right because I haven't been a student in so long that I I wanted to make sure that I was ready for the challenge." But my day-to-day was pretty angry. 
you know, I had a lot of emotional baggage from three deployments. I didn't have the um, emotional intelligence to know how to deal with it, right? And I didn't have much of an outlet. So I had a lot of things going against me. And then the isolation, right? Like I had an apartment. My roommate at the time was also a guy who just got out. And then unfortunately, he he was hating life. So he had, he went back to mercenary work. So he went right back overseas. And I was on my own in a, in a crummy apartment. <laughs> so yeah, you, you, get, you get a lot of things going against me. Isolation, a lot of emotional issues, probably drinking a little too much in terms of like just day to day. I wasn't like blackout drunk or anything. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was just, you know, that was my, I'd have a couple of beers after school or after work and it didn't help. It wasn't a healthy outlet. So I was in a rough patch, but I, I know what you're getting at. The whole idea of the starting from scratch. I had a lot of personal doubt, you know, about what I was doing and that, and I didn't really understand my path, even though I knew what I wanted. I didn't know how to get it. And I thought, oh, just go to school. Like this is the stuff that got spouted to us externally for years, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I reverted to those old ideas of this is what you should do to be successful. And I did. And I, and I don't think I was successful at all because they weren't my ideas. Mm-hmm. It was what I thought was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's where I was. That was, a, that was a tough year or two. And then, you know, I became a lot more serious with my my girlfriend, who then became my wife, thank goodness. Well, we ha- we do that, have to talk about, we, have to, we definitely have to talk about that story yeah. of how you two met. But before, For sure. so you're, you're finishing up school, mm-hmm. you're 20-something years old, and yep. kind of a little lost. Yeah. And yeah, you're, I'm sure, concerned that if you're going to be a doctor, how old are you going to be when you finally adopt? Mm-hmm. Right. And I was, I was talking to my mom and she was saying, well, what, what's the problem? I said, well, if I apply to medical school, I wouldn't get in until next year. And then it's four years of medical school. And then it's another three years of residency. And I might not be starting my career until I'm, you know, almost 40. I don't want to start my career at 40. Like I'd be, I'd be terrible at my job. I wouldn't have enough time to be good at anything. And again, this, this goes right back to the idea of expectation, right? There's such a difference between expectation and potential. Expectation is something external. Potential is like, I know what I'm capable of and I'm going to go get it. Mm-hmm. But, but my mom said, you know, you can be a 39-year-old plumber. You can be a 39-year-old anything. You're going to be 39. Would you rather be a 39-year-old doctor and do what you want to do? And I, it just kind of struck me. I was like, oh, shit. Oh shit, she's right. <laughs> she's totally right. I'm going to be 39 no matter what I do unless I die before then. And the reality was like age, that's a construct, right? Mm-hmm. There's no substitute for taking the initiative and doing what you really want to do and who cares how old you are. I'll be honest, I went to I've trained with people that were 10 years younger than than I and and doesn't make a difference. I have a lot of life experience they didn't changes how we are as clinicians. It changes how I talk to people. I'd love to talk to you about that little journey because becoming a, a clinician is not the same thing as becoming a doctor. This is, they're, they're very different things. And for me, it was one of those things like, all right, well, now I get it. Now I have a path. Now I see that all of this journey was for a reason. Now I have a goal to go meet. And once I had that internal direction, that, that compass again, was pointing in one direction, then everything made sense. Then everything became really clear. And it was, everything got easy after that. 
Well, that's not true. Everything, the decisions became easier. You were making the decisions. Yeah, it was me. It wasn't some external idea of what I should do, right? So, of course, uh, I mean, the challenge is just as difficult, but the goals are there because they're your goals. They were my so, goals. So the actions become, in a sense, easier. You just know what you're supposed to be doing. And that, that takes a lot out of it. We all know somebody who took some path that we would never expect of them, and yet it was the perfect decision for that person. And the reason why it was perfect was because who cares what we expect? <laughs> like We don't know what's going on in, inside that person. We don't know until you ask. Speaking of what's going on inside of a person, what was going inside your wife's mind when she decided to, to, to date you? <laughs> um, I unfortunately will never know. <laughs> because when I met her, it was three days after having my teeth knocked out. So when she met me, my lip was swollen and I had no front teeth because I was playing hockey without a mask. And I tried swallowing a moving hockey puck and knocked my teeth out. And I, I had these little chiclets on the ice. So I fly down to Costa Rica two days later after having an emergency like root canal because the teeth were dead. <laughs> and so this is, this is about three days after getting my teeth knocked out at this point. And my two army buddies who had just gotten out as well, they met me in Costa Rica. They flew there the night before I did, and we had these little two-way radios. And we had this cockamamie plan that I would get in a taxi and get a cab towards the city. And we would turn on our radios at a particular time, and they would talk me into where they were. This is this is the dumbest. Can, like, can you just imagine the number of ways this plan could have unfolded poorly and have me getting, you know? chartered in an alley in san jose you know like this this could have gone really really badly but the plan worked they talked me in and i show up at my friend's hotel which was ours and they said give me 100 bucks and i handed them 100 bucks and, and i go what did i buy and they said a whitewater rafting trip i was like cool <laughs> and we go and it was it was great and we take this van to rio Pacuare in costa rica it was beautiful looked like something out of a magazine from the 50s, like just untouched, great, pretty, you know, it didn't look all commercialized, like some, you know, rafting trip, uh, or if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, and just doesn't look natural at all. So I go and, and most of the people paid for a trip to go all the way down the river in one day. And there were six of us that chose to spend the night halfway down the river in this little side river bungalow thing. And it was me and my two friends and these three gals. And uh, the six of us had a fantastic time. We ended up traveling together for uh, the next week and a half together. And that's how I met my wife. She was one of the girls in the raft with us. And we, we just connected and talked and traveled. And it was amazing to have that travel experience where you're just unencumbered and you know, you're your best self when you're traveling. You're not, you're not your job. You're not some expectation of you. You just get to be who you really are and be honest. And it was, it was a lot of fun with, and no, then, teeth. with no teeth of all things. I don't, I want to, I don't want to put any words in her mouth and say that she fell in love with me at that point. I think it was one of those fun experiences where like, who's this guy with no teeth? who's clearly very intelligent, well-spoken, but has a lisp because he can't talk. <laughs> and yet, you know, just this, free-spirited guy and i think it was partly because i just got out of the military at that point and we were all sort of 
free and exploring the world. I, I, besides that trip, I also went to Europe. I'm, you know, met some old army buddies. Like I was really in a, it was, it was a good headspace to be in to try to get out after a combat deployment. Mm-hmm. I didn't have too much time to decompress. I think I got back from my last deployment and then within two months I was out of the army. There was no real preparation. So this was a bit of a, a long awaited exhale. Like I was in a, I was in a good place at that point. Do they, do they, is there any sort of exit strategy for? Yeah, there is, there is. There, there's a whole process that you, you do need to go through before they let you get out of the army. There's a lot of briefings. They want you to kind of, there's like resume building classes. There's a lot of this stuff. Like they call like a, a green to gray. Like how do you make yourself marketable in the corporate world? That wasn't really available to me. Partly because I was in special operations and we did things a little bit differently. Partly because, you know, when you turn your back on the army, they they keep moving forward. They don't they don't really care. Mm. And at that point, I think in my career and where I was, I kind of got the cold shoulder from my unit. Mm. Um, it wasn't like a there was no, there's no animosity. It wasn't, wasn't like I got in trouble and got kicked out. It was more of a hey, we're moving forward with our mission. You're not. You know, you're getting out. Good luck. So, so there really wasn't any mentorship. There was no. I didn't really follow the standard like army protocols for getting out. Like they, they got every last ounce of work out of me, and that was about it. I was on my own to kind of get my clearing papers done, which is a lot of work. You get a lot of a lot of paperwork, but unfortunately, that that's just how it was, and that's okay. I don't have any ill feeling toward them about it because that's the mission. When you're in a special operations unit, the mission is not. Hey, making sure all your guys have good, you know, stuff at home to take care of them. It's really, you know, the mission comes first and, and their mission was to train for the next deployment, which was coming around the corner. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they actually, it kind of sucked. They put you on something called, um, uh, you know, like a desk duty called CQ, charge of quarters, where you have to sit there for 24 hours and answer the phone and you're basically the guard for the building. But after the 24 hours, you got 24 hours off. So they would almost... Because <laughs> when they found out I was getting out, they, it was like a punishment. They put me on CQ <laughs> like three days out of a week. So it'd be like 24 on, 24 hours off, 24 hours at CQ, 24 hours off. And it was almost like a, a little bit of an FU, like, all right, you want to go clear? You want to get your army stuff taken care of so you can get out? You can use your 24 hours off. <laughs> but they got, yeah, they, and it was like that for like probably two weeks. You know? It is what it is. I, I'm not, I'm not mad. But it was it was definitely kind of a foot in the butt out the door, and I, I was pretty excited to go to Costa Rica, and I met my wife, and yeah, the rest is history. Good history, though. Yeah, sure, sure is, and and um, we all we all immediately knew that she was the right one for you because anybody who is romantically <laughs> interested in the way you look <laughs> is a, just a special woman. She cared deeply about you personally. I should say that after I got my teeth fixed. Probably five or six years ago, um, I had to get my teeth extracted. There was a problem. And there was like some bone erosion. So they had to yank out the teeth that they had fixed. So I had a, a gap. Like these three teeth were gone uh, for about two years while I was getting implants ready. And I had to go through multiple surgeries. And I remember coming home after the extraction and she jokes. So she goes, oh, it's just like when we met. <laughs> <laughs> she jumped you, huh? <laughs> no, not exactly. I, it's not super attractive, but it was charming in its own way. There you go. I will say this about the relationship with my wife. I never expected a romantic relationship 
like the one I have with my wife. And I think part of it is that we met under such extraordinary conditions, but also we really adopted that whole Pura Vida, you know, Costa Rican mentality. I'm not saying that we're, you know, by any means uh, living like Central American lifestyle or anything, but it's, we've always kind of adopted it and embraced it. And romance is a good thing. It's okay to, to allow that in your life. And I don't think I ever had that before. What's Pura Vida? Pura Vida is, it's like a slogan in, in Costa Rica it means pure life or good life, but um, it's this very carefree approach. Um, they're super friendly. Hmm. Um, Pura Vida is, is going about your business and making every experience a good one. Hmm. You know, every stranger you meet, you can just say Pura Vida and you've got some, like a very PG-13 connection to them. Not everything has to be measuring the person across from you the way I think our, our society does. Like we size people up really quickly. Mm. There's there was no feeling like that. There was no expectation. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. It is. That's awesome. Actually, I I had it engraved on her. Um, I think her engagement ring when I had it made, I had that that put on there for her. That's that's super cool. Yeah, that is super cool. So let's. Um, you wanted to talk about. So we can. We're going to get into this. Uh, what you were talking about here. You kind of wanted to talk about uh, clinician versus sort of being. Oh clinic. yeah. So let's talk about. So you go to medical school, you get out, mm-hmm. you're, you're now, you're a medical doctor mm-hmm. and you're a practicing clinician. And mm-hmm. what does that, what, first of all, what does that mean to you finally to be doing the thing that you set out so long ago to do, to be 40 right? and you're not the plumber or the whatever that your mom said you could do, you right. hard work to be what you really wanted to be. What does that mean to you now? So you got to go back a little bit, not too far back, but I remember when, when I was in college and sort of getting away from what my path could have been and not to belabor that, but I wasn't doing well. And my parents at one point, before I joined the military, they split up for a while. Not going to go into that. None of, nobody else's business. But what really is formative for me was that I remember speaking to my sister and, and it was a surprise to me. And she said, really? You're surprised? You didn't see the warning signs? And I'm like, hmm? Morning, son. Wake up. <laughs> I was so egocentric at that age, and I think all young men kind of suffer from this. And I didn't perceive the world around me for what it was. I certainly didn't perceive other people's interpersonal relationships besides what I expected when I saw them. And that was a real blow to my both my ego and as well as my intellect. I really valued my intellect, highly valued in my intellect. And when I found out that it was that I had a gaping the mechanism, hole. a gaping hole in my perception of the world, that really stung. Mm. And I had to consciously assess my own ability to to perceive the world. This took me down a lot of different rabbit holes, a lot of different readings, um, philosophically as well as you know. You can't just study 18th century British literature and call yourself an academic. Like that's not the same thing as being able to see the world. Like all those writers were writing in their world mm-hmm. that they were perceiving. All of our 21st century writers are writing in the world that they are perceiving. And how could I consider myself academic if I wasn't actually perceiving the world I was living in? You can't just read other people's historical texts and and regurgitate it. Exactly. You can't you can't extrapolate that into your own life. So I took it upon myself to really go deep into 
uh, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, um, like uh, body language, reading, that sort of thing, mm. even hypnosis and figure out like what type of mental pathways people are accessing to, to make people think and behave a certain way. So I took a real interest in behaviors. And I think that's kind of served me pretty well over time because now that I, and this is probably a good 15 years before I went to, well, maybe not that long, probably about 10 or 12 years before I went to medical school. But I really took it upon myself to start paying attention to everybody's mannerisms. And what I learned was when you understand a person's motivations, all of their actions make sense. Mm-hmm. This again, this goes back to like Stoic philosophy, the, the kind of stuff that really rings true to me, which is everything in its nature. If you're true to yourself and you're behaving in your nature, this is where true happiness comes from. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care. Like that's not what Stoicism is. It's not that you don't care about things outside your control. It's that you accept it, you perceive it for what it truly is, and you move on. Do I have OCD and do I get upset when I see trash on the ground? Yeah. Do I pick it up? Yeah. Do I dwell on it afterward? No, not anymore. I used to do that. But now it just means perceive it, accept it for what it is in its in its rightful place, and then, you know, pick up a piece of trash, throw it away, move on. Don't don't let your mind consume the the action. Let the action be itself and then and then move forward. And I think becoming a clinician for me was the end point of i i don't think i can go any human interaction now without perceiving someone and allowing them to just kind of be who they truly are it's really kind of a great feeling to just always have that capacity to see someone for who they are and not what you expect them to be hmm. because like i said we're balls of clay you never know who's going to scuff your ball of clay. You never know who's going to lay a fingerprint. This is the problem with my old academic mindset, which was I don't have something to learn from this person, Mm. right? That's not okay. I don't go through life like that anymore, right? I have a much more accepting approach of those around me. Like They have experiential learning too. They don't need to have the same pedigree or read the same book as me or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Every, everybody can teach you something mm-hmm. if you let them be themselves this is definitely a trait that medicine has has cultivated in me but it, it started before then it started from a point of of shame and and needing self-improvement i don't know if everyone has that kind of experience but i i definitely had a wake-up call when i was a young man and i was like oh gosh my sister kind of called me out and you know she didn't have to say it but she's like you're selfish <laughs> you're all, you're seeing the world through through a really limited scope, and you need to expand your mind and and, and expect if if you want to I don't know if you want to have decent interpersonal relationships, you really need to let people be who they are and not what you expect them to be. And I think that's helped my wife and I. I think that's helped with my friendships. Oh, dude, you and I have been friends a long time. You and I have been in some fights before. Mm-hmm. And if I look back, I think, gosh, it's mainly because I have really high expectations of my friends extremely high expectations of my friends because that's what I like. I have my own personal compass about how I think a friend should behave. Don't we do that to a lot of people where we put our own expectations of what we would do for them on them? Mm -hmm. That's a problem. I think a lot. Oh, sorry. The, (laughs) I see it a lot, especially in men our age, which Mm -hmm. is that maybe interpersonal relationships aren't super valuable. And part of that is because, we have expectations on each other. Yes. 
<laughs> You're not saying much. I oh, I just I you know I completely agree, and um, it's something that I I've worked on with with my coach, and it's something that I still I mean I don't know that I'll ever be good be good enough at this or be great at this, but there is a huge difference between what we expect and what we agree upon. And, and, and my coach has sort of helped me realize that there's, you know, I expect my, I expect Ashley, my wife to cut an avocado the way I cut an avocado. Mm -hmm. And if she doesn't do it, I, like, I, I have this urge to go, Hey, can, can you cut it this way? Which is incredibly annoying. And I've, I've even talked about, I, th- I think I've, I don't know if I've blogged about this or talked about it on the podcast, but I had this expectation of her doing the dishes in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, she kept putting a bowl uh, upright as opposed to putting it down facing the jets. And I'm like, I don't like, why are you doing that? Like, it's so weird, I, but I didn't tell her this. This is all a conversation in my head. I have this expectation of her doing this. Like what is going on in her brain? What, and I just, I just kept taking it and flipping it over and flipping it over. And I just kept getting more angry and angry. And I'm like, I'm, I haven't even had a conversation with her about it. And um, Sarah goes, why don't you, you know, like, why don't you work on this, this, you know, have a, have a talk with her, have an agreement. And so I, I went to her and I said, Hey, you know, why I wonder just, why are you putting this upside down in this thing? Like, it, you know, I keep putting it this way. And she's like, Oh, because you know, I want the jets to hit it. And she didn't realize there's, that there were two sets of jets. There's jets from above and below. Yeah, there's jets from no. There's just there's a, a jet from below on the very bottom, and then a jet uh-huh. right beneath the second layer. And she didn't realize. She thought that the jets shot up all the way to the top and came down. And I just I showed her like, no, look, here's a second set of jets. And she's like, oh, okay. And she flipped it over. And now <laughs> we've that's complete. You know, all that sort of that anger, that situation, this is a really lighthearted story. About sort <laughs> no, of- it's not lighthearted at yeah. all. Are you kidding me? That's a, that's a fight waiting to happen if you don't address it. But this is, what expectations do. <laughs> this is what expectations do. They create this. They, they create tension where there really isn't any. There, is, there isn't and doesn't need to be. Yeah. I, and I think my wife and I have had a lot of those over the years and I've, I've probably toned my OCD down because I've learned that what are you going to do? Hold it in, and like you're going to you're going to hold it in, and, and then lose your lose your shit when uh, your wife like leaves the socks inside out before they go in the laundry. Like that's not a good reason to have a fight. It's not going to go well either. No, are they socks being cleaned? Yes, they are. <laughs> They're clean from the inside out, and then you have to like undo them. Like <gasps> oh so, but but yeah, good relationship. You you really do need to be willing to fight for it. You really do need to, when something bothers you, you need to address it, right? You don't want to let something fester to the point where the wrong thing is being addressed, right? What's the secret to, uh, to a great relationship with, uh, with your spouse for you, with my, for me, yeah, for you, I love that my wife can still surprise me. Mm. I love it. I absolutely cherish that. I don't know everything about my wife. And when when she does something that confounds me, I ask her about it because you just never know. And if you assume that the person you married is the same person who's sitting next to you, you're wrong. <laughs> People change over time. They have, you know, they read something different on the internet than you. They listened to a song and heard something different than you. And 
it's really great to still experience the world in the present and be present for someone mm-hmm. and not base it off of, I met this gal in Costa Rica. Like we're different people. We travel well together. We love a lot of the same things, but I'm, I'm more in love with my wife now than I was then. And I, I'm very, very happy that I get to, I still get to learn about her. And I think that's kind of fun that I'm, my wife isn't going to get boring over time. I'm not going to bore her over time. Like it's okay to change and change with someone and grow with someone. And I think that's really fun. Mm. I think the last two years have been kind of tough on, on us because like the political situation, it just drowns out all of the other things in the world. Like there's so many amazing things to talk about and the political spectrum just really does a awful job of creating this environment of noise and anger and and uncertainty and you find that you don't you almost don't want to talk about certain stuff at a certain point so we make it a habit to make sure that we just check in and not talk about things that are going to piss us off i remember when we first started dating she was in san francisco and i was in la finishing school and sometimes i'd come home from school or she'd come home from work and we 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 made up this little thing where it was like a like we made we gave up a time limit for how long we could bitch about something essentially like a venting timeline and i i actually think that we probably still do it maybe not explicitly but we probably once you get to a point where like hey you you, you just turn the little thing on the instapot to vent it a little but then you got to close that thing back up so we 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 allow ourselves to vent for venting's sake and not allow too much negativity to enter our lives. So at the end of the day, if you need to, you know, talk about your boss or complain about a work situation or or just say, hey, this I had a bad interaction with with someone today, like, yeah, get it out. I will I will hey, let me pause this. Let me be present. Let me listen. I may not understand, I may not agree, but I'm gonna give you this opportunity. Get it out. Better not to keep it in. And I think that we've done a really good job over the years of never letting the negativity become a focal point in our lives. Like my wife is an extremely positive person. You've seen the effect she's had on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I am, I'm a happy, calm person. What, what, <laughs> what crazy Jay? No way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She's taught me a lot of good things about, allowing the good parts of you to to shine through and not let negativity or angst or the unknown to take take hold part of that is training part of that is allowing the world to not be perfect allowing things if you're a perfectionist and i i think i am in a lot of ways allowing imperfection is okay allowing the gray area is okay when i was younger everything was black and white man that moral compass was I think it's this, it's this. And I think that's, I think a lot of young people have that understanding of the world. They don't have much room for a gray zone. And I think that that's where a lot of people live anyway. And we should be a little bit more tolerant of that. How do you, do you, I mean, besides Cody, your wife being optimistic, do you, do you try to still sort of optimism into your family for Parker? And do you practice optimism somehow? 
my dad was more the optimist. I've always been more the cynic. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, to a T. I know this. <laughs> he called me a cynic for years. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I look up and I'm like, actually, I, I'm the perfect definition of a cynic. Uh, that is that is exactly what I. So no, I don't. I don't actually practice optimism by any means. I think I'm much more pragmatic. And if something has utility for me, I will be optimistic. But I will only be optimistic in its essence if it's you. If it's utilitarian, I can be optimistic. Well, if you're one half of a whole and mm-hmm. your wife completes you, well, then you've chosen the right partner. So, I think so. Your partner should compliment you. should Should soften your rough edges, and you should be able to you should be able to argue with your spouse. I think, and I don't mean argue to fight. I mean you should be able to test each other. Mm. And I don't. I, I see a lot of people that just don't. Maybe they do it behind closed doors. I, I prefer to, if I'm going to tell a joke about a person, I prefer them to be in the room. Otherwise, it's just mean. <laughs> I've always said that good comedy is good comedy no matter what the setting is. Like you should, I don't want to have to tell a joke about someone and then answer for it later. I want to be able to say like, yeah, I said that. That was hilarious. You do, you do act like this. Go to heck. You're like, uh, I'm not going to roll back my words for you. I'm going to say what I think is, is right. And I, I, I like that I can do that with my wife. Like we can, we can joke with each other still. We can laugh with each other still. I think laughter is a pretty solid way to go through life. Do you guys have? Do you have uh, specific date nights or do specific things where you, you've? Uh, yeah. I know it's hard with uh, with your schedule and her schedule and a young boy. Do you have any specific time that you set aside for each other? Unfortunately. We've never been the couple to kind of set aside a date night. And part of that is because with the military lifestyle and my lifestyle, it's been really difficult to kind of have access to a babysitter. The other thing is when we move around, we've, we've always been on our own. Like we've never had family nearby. Um, we've never had that kind of support that a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. So it's always been, you know, you kind of rely on your other friends in similar situations in the military. And that's why the military family is so great is that other people understand. Mm. But I'm a shift worker, and my shifts aren't 9 to 5. Yeah. So we don't have anything set aside. I think we, we, we do our best. But usually we, we put our son down, and then it's, you know, we don't go off and do our own thing after that. That's, that's our time to talk to each other and spend time with each other. And yeah, I, I will say there's a big difference between being home and being present. Mm. Right. I think I was probably practicing mindfulness before that was a a self-help term or before I was aware of it. And it was one of those things where because I'm an intense individual, because I can block out everything around me if I'm reading or studying, and by the way, med school is is hell on families for this reason, right? You really have to isolate. The idea was, hey, if you're at work, you're at work. I get it. But when you're home, I need you to be present. And that means you can't be, you can't have your mind elsewhere when someone's talking to you, mm-hmm. learning to be a good listener, learning to perceive the world around you. When I said like that was like being a clinician was so much more of a journey than being a, just a doctor. Like you, anyone can pass med school if you work hard enough and slog through enough PowerPoints and pass enough tests. The, the real skill is learning how to be a good listener, 
learning how to look at the person across from you and not being worried about, oh my gosh, I have so much paperwork to do. When will this patient stop talking so I can get this stuff done? Hmm. It's, it's really, it's really getting rid of that impetus to be elsewhere. It's, it's the idea that you can control your mind and focus on one thing at a time and task switch and really be present for what you need to be present for. That helps both with patients and it helps with being there for my wife when she needs me to listen or being there for my kid when I'm trying to reason with a six-year-old. <laughs> you have to, sometimes you just grit your teeth and be like, this is not a logical argument, but I'm going to let you have it. Because <laughs> I don't have the strength <laughs> to argue right now. I'm just going to be your dad and just enjoy this for what it is and, and it's okay. Do you have any specific practices around mindfulness or presence, or is it just just a sort of lifetime thing for you of studying human behavior and human psychology? And like I said, not a lifetime. I went from academic to being a lot more grounded and in, in like, hey, you are not this thing. You are a person. Everyone mm-hmm. is a person. That homeless guy is a person you you're not better than anyone just because your brain works differently Mm -hmm. it is a practice it is a conscious thing that you have to do every day especially when you're busy don't you feel like have you ever been really 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 busy and the task at hand starts to take precedence over the people involved in the task that's okay when everyone's working together towards a shared goal but not everybody has your goal and i think in the military, and obviously my views are not the views in the military anyway, but I think some of the leadership practices are pretty good, which is if you can get people to believe in your task and have them work towards that task without you shouting at them and pointing fingers, you've done a good job as a leader. That's a hard thing to find. Mm-hmm. And if you go through your life like that, you'll find that if you can get people to believe in a thing or a task, the task gets a lot easier because everyone's got a shared goal. I always bought into that pretty easily. Probably why I liked team sports. It's probably why I liked joining the army. It's probably why, you know, I enjoy marriage. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we have a shared goal together. We don't we don't fight over what we want in life. We really don't. We just sit and talk and we have a shared goal and we we go get it. Mm-hmm. Whether that's whether the task at hand is something domestic or it's something bigger, like, hey, what are we doing for the next 10 years? Those are tough conversations. But if you have them, they become um, pretty easy to have when you have a shared goal. I'm not, I'm not sure if I answered your question appropriately. That's all right. We've, it's, it's just, I think you did, but um, I like where, where all this has gone. What does living a full, amazing life mean to Jay? At this point in my life, I can say I'm, I turned 40 this year, about three weeks after having my first surgery, which was terrifying. And for me, living a full life is I get to go to work every day and live my dream, which was unthinkable only 10 years ago. Like I dropped out of college to join the military. I was an enlisted medic, the furthest thing from my original goal. And to come all the way back around to go from, I don't understand responsibility and consequence to I'm in full charge of my life. I'm actually helping people on a day-to-day basis. I actually believe in what I do. And on days when the army nonsense isn't there and I'm not dealing with bureaucratic stuff and 
online trainings about security, which, which by the way, all military and government personnel have to do. It's not like you can get out of it. Like there are days you just have to, you just have to do it. And those are not fun. But, uh, on other days I get to help soldiers out or today I was training some medics and doing some trauma care. And that is extraordinarily rewarding because I know at the end of the day, I'm, I'm using my skills for good. I think, hope. And the teaching aspect of what I do, it's like one of those things to give back. Like I really do take medics under my wing because I was a medic. Mm -hmm. Most of the medics where I work, they don't always get the best training or they don't get to do their jobs. And they rarely get to work with an ER doc who says, yeah, I believe in you. It's an extraordinary thing to tell someone or or for, for maybe someone in that role to hear from someone of authority, like, I believe in you you can do this job. You don't even know how much you're capable of. And that's the difference between ambition and potential. It's like, you might think that you're going to be a YouTube star, but (laughs) versus, hey, I can be anything I want if I work hard enough. That's not something you hear too much of anymore. Mm -hmm. People have really lofty ambitions, but no one sets them aside and says like, hey, this is what I think you're capable of. This is what you can do to meet your goal. Or, hey, I think you're actually capable of more than you think. That's an amazing thing to... Maybe even take a step back further and say, first, is that really what you want to do? Right. Which is kind of the journey that you were talking about going through, right? Deciding right. what it is that you really want to do. What is it that makes... You, what would make you happy? Imagine your happiest self in 10 years. Now imagine what little steps it would take not big steps, because I think little accomplishments lead to, to great things. Mm-hmm. And each one of those little steps along the way is a victory in itself. And then I remember a quote, God, when I was in RIP, this is to get into Ranger Battalion, it was hell. <laughs> and uh, we had to paint this rock and put a quote on it. And the quote we put on there was, I want to say it was from, um, I'm not sure if it was attributed correctly, but the the quote essentially goes, one cannot be Disciplined in how's it go? Little things. Okay, I really should have looked this up before we we spoke. But essentially, it was one cannot be disciplined in in great things and not in little things. Like there's only one discipline, perfect mm-hmm. discipline. And the idea was you're not going to accomplish great things, and then on the side, like not fold your laundry at night. Like you you have to be disciplined, and there's no little discipline. There's no it, it's it's you either are or you are not. Right, that whole Yoda idea of there is no try. <laughs> you have to accomplish the little things before you can accomplish those big things. And for me, it's always been check that box, move on to the next task. If you really believe in something, you're going to get it. If you really want something, you'll prioritize it. If you really cared about having a six pack of abs, you'll do some sit-ups tonight. You'll find the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's how you go through life, right? If you really want something, you'll do it. You just have to ask yourself what you really want. And and if you really want to live a full life, you're going to ask yourself harder questions before you accomplish those great things. Because the sad truth is, all great accomplishments start out as as little ones along the way. You you don't just you don't just climb a mountain with one stride. Like (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen. Unfortunately, most of the time you're 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 just going to have to get those little steps out of the way and and keep going forward. Mm -hmm. But isn't that isn't that everything? Yeah, I think the the thing that I kind of talk about 
on this podcast and the thing I think about all the time is is this this strange phenomenon that and we don't have to go too deep into this but please it's this strange thing where 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 we we like we think we want something but we fool ourselves right like uh, Richard Feynman has that the famous quote his sort of first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool <laughs> and I'm sure you know he meant it in a lot of different ways but in like we have humans have this very strange thing where we we say we want something, but we don't actually take the time to think deeply whether or not we really want it. Mm-hmm. And as you sort of pointed out, only when you really want something will you put in the effort to get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you really want like people that say, "Oh, I want to lose, I want to lose weight." Well, you really don't want. Yeah, it you don't. I mean, you want to. Lo- you don't want to look fat. That's all it is. Right. You want so, a smaller butt. <laughs> That's but, it. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately for me, I, I think uh, all of my height all, went right yeah. in my. My butt region. Well, we're hockey players. We got big glutes and nowhere around it. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, I, I think, you know, for me, the the first step that I've sort of discovered in this process is that my, ho- my whole entire adult life and, you know, childhood to that matter too, but you're exploring more in your childhood than you are sort of when you sort of become an adult or you start adulting. Mm-hmm. Um, but this whole, my whole experience is I just, I did so many things from, as you pointed out, outside expectations of me mm-hmm. without really even thinking that they were outside expectations. And by the way, none of those, that's not a bad thing. Like, right. It's a, it's a, it's a good path for, it, it's a good guide. It's not necessarily your journey, but it's a path. It's a starting point, right? Yeah. I, and I, the funny thing is when you were talking about, you take the, you know, you little steps up the mountain is my, the way I envision this is when you, when you're sort of living unconsciously or you're living other people's expectations, you see this mountain in the distance mm-hmm. and you feel like you're climbing it, but really you're walking in circles. Oh, totally. You, you're never really on a path. If you're, you don't even take the step. You don't even know the foothills. If, if anything, that mountain that you really want, you're probably walking away from it, like down right. the mountain. <laughs> you're only making more work for yourself for that next journey. And only when I, you go internally and you get to know yourself and you decide what it is that you truly, truly want. Right. So then the question is like, what's the hardest question you can ask yourself? What do I want? Why do I want that? Okay. Why do I want that? Right. <laughs> Keep asking why. Keep asking, Keep asking why, 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 right? why. Until you get to the core of why you really want it. If I could ask myself that question now, and, I, and what I really wish I could do is go back in time and ask that 20-year-old me the same questions. And, and I really wonder if the answers would be the same. If we're allowed to change them, the idea that 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 really, really, really deep, 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 deep question. Maybe that is the same, and it just you get away from it. Would the twenty-year-old version of Jay listen to the forty-year-old virgin version of Jay? The forty-year-old virgin. Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. How'd that happen? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I think the answers would be the same if I asked why enough. Mm. I have to believe that. I have to believe that because we look back at our youth with such nostalgia. And we look back at it with, you know, there's an innocence to it, but that's still us, right? Like I said, my kid was my kid when he came out. He didn't require me, my neuroticism to make him, you know, think and see the way the world the way he does with his personality. Like, that's his personality. He's allowed that. Mm-hmm. I have to think that there's something real to that, that there's something of value to that. And I think that if we went back and asked enough questions, you would find a kernel that remains. 
that is who we are. And maybe over time, you kind of your paths and your journeys and your experiences, all that experiential learning kind of takes you away. I don't want to say away in a direction, right? A vector from that, that person, right? But you're still that person. Still you. Just maybe right? be a different Meta- you. Metaphorically, like you change during the journey, right? So yeah, it's still you, but you've, you've gone on a journey. And I think the journey for me from 20 to 40 has been one of learning how much value there is in accepting a responsibility and, and finding out how meaningless some of the other ventures I had were. Mm-hmm. And that I get a lot of meaning from, not to put too much gravity on it, but jobs that don't have meaning to me in a greater sense really don't fulfill me. I enjoy having the responsibility of a soldier in my in my care. That gives me a lot of pride and, and value, right? Being a physician to me has a lot of value. Like I, I believe in my job and I take it seriously. But more than that, when I go home, like I can leave my my job at my job and I can go home and like be a person and know that I did my best. That's that's a really good feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm a different person than when I was 20. I was probably looking for some sort of meaning. Mm. And those personal pursuits that young men will, will go after just just didn't do it. I just wasn't happy. I'm mm-hmm. a lot happier now that I can do my job. And you don't have to be an expert in your field. I thought that was an important thing back in the day. I don't think that's important anymore. I think it's more about knowing your own capabilities, limitations, and doing the best that you can do, but also like believing yourself and believing your potential and going out and getting it. Hmm. You don't you don't have to be friggin' the biggest personality in the room. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be the best you. We're we're getting close to the end here, so we'll ask a few maybe Wah. hopefully uh, shorter shorter questions. But you were always someone that was sort of hard on yourself and you you're much healthier now i mean you you talk about sort of doing the things that you love to do and and not needing to be an expert i mean Mm -hmm. these are things that you would have i think as a kid been adamantly the opposite on truly how how are you like do you do you practice any sort of like self-love or like self-acceptance in ways or are you just are you just having a kid now quite the opposite Quite the opposite. I'm I'm still hard on myself. My my old man used to say, "You're you're your toughest critic," mm-hmm. and I had a real hard time accepting compliments. What I f- came to learn was that some of the self-deprecating humor was my way of releasing that tension. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, when I was studying, you know, you have to do psychology kind of class in med school. There's all these things called your mature and immature compensatory mechanisms or defenses. Mm. and if you read the list you can google this and like what are the mature defenses and immature defenses uh it turns out my mature my defense was always humor you know me like i'll joke about some dark stuff this is probably what attracted me to emergency medicine in the first place that gallows humor the um not taking yourself too seriously once you let go of your ego and you can function in your job and you can kind of laugh at yourself a little bit that ended up being one of the best things for me. So I still am hard on myself, but I don't take myself so seriously where the expectation outweighs the performance, right? If I have a bad shift, 
at work, it's not because I didn't know something, right? It's not because my intellect wasn't there. It's not because I didn't, and I'm just making something up. It's not like, like I didn't sew somebody's cut in a straight line. Like that's not what makes a bad shift for me. What makes a bad shift for me is usually some sort of interpersonal interaction, right? You say something, a nurse hears something one way and you meant it a different way, or you have a bad interaction on the phone with a consultant. That's usually what a bad shift is. And if you think about that in just about every avenue of your life, how often is it that you really did your job wrong mm. versus there was, there was some form of conflict between what somebody thought you meant or, or what you said was interpreted incorrectly? Think about all the conflict we have right now in our world. Think of how much of it is based off of interpretation versus that's not what I meant when I said it. Or, yeah, that's that's not true. That's not what I said. Like, this is the form that I've taken in terms of you asked me, do I practice self-love? No, I actually practice self-deprecating humor and I make fun of myself mm. to knock myself down a peg. So I don't take myself too seriously. So I allow myself to be who I am, faults included. I don't get too angry about there are things you can improve and you should focus on those improvements. The things that are outside your control, you accept them. Mm. And you just say, all right, that happened. I'm not going to do that again. So be it and move on. Because if you don't, you're going to start looking into the past instead of being in the present. And I think being present is more than just looking at someone in the eyes and nodding while they talk. It means I got to be here to live my best life. I can't live my best life in my mind yesterday. I can't live my best life analyzing something to the point of inaction. I can't live my best life thinking about yesterday's mistake and trying not to replicate the mistake. Like, It's okay to reflect. It's okay to make mistakes. Try not to make the same mistake twice, though. Mm -hmm. You know, Accept the mistake for what it is. That's about as honest as you can be in this world. Beyond that, I just I've lowered my I've lowered my expectation of like perfection in all avenues of my life. Mm. When I'm in a task, trust me, that perfectionism is there. 100 <laughs> percent There's no way around it. That's who I am. I'm very intense. But but when the task is done, you look at it, say, yep, that was crap. I did it wrong. I appreciate the focus, but you did it wrong. <laughs> improve move on yeah stop judging yourself so hardly and make a joke you're not you're not that important nobody is a bunch of freaking primates walking around with cell phones trying to like be important like no no I most just, of the time you're just a carbohydrate eating organism that's you know pissing other people off and that's okay you can do that some of the time other time be your best self yeah I love the I love the this visual um I forget where I heard this from but I just love this visual of of what we are we we are just little basically microorganisms if you you know you zoom out on this organic floating spaceship <laughs> We are no you know what we are if you think about the internet as like all of us holding our cell phones we are in the petri dish Mm -hmm. We are the little organisms, the little amoebas. Sitting on and your the actual organism is the internet. 
and we're like trying to project our thoughts onto it. Like it gives a shit about us. <laughs> like we are the all important amoebas, right? The plaque on the bigger organisms too. It's like, what is this organism? Eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. We really need to take ourselves just a smidge less seriously mm-hmm. and realize that the person in front of you is probably the most important person in the world at that moment. And you can make the world a better place, I think, by just treating someone like they're the most important person in the room, letting them feel like you hurt them. And that's a great way to go move forward in life and not like spend your life just in a negative cycle of other people's expectations or or making other people suffer through your expectations of them. That's That's kind of my philosophy at this point. So uh, I'll ask a few sort of last quicker questions. One of one is sort of favorite books, but let me ask okay. it in a different way. Um, let me ask you specifically, besides the porn magazines that we sent you when you were overseas, you uh, which we did. You did. Um, <laughs> Jason also taped one of his pubes to that letter. Thank you. That was, and he wrote a little arrow that said, this is a pube. Oh, that was what you guys sent me to cheer me up when I was deployed. Oh, Jason. I appreciate it. What a nice gesture. Yeah. Um, Heartfelt. That, that's disgusting. But <laughs> <laughs> So besides the porn, which we sent you for the articles, obviously, um, were there any books that you read during deployment or after deployment that really kind of, that really helped you out, that kept you going, that you remembered that was really sort of meaningful, meaningful for you during the time? <sighs> Oh, I wish you had sent me that question a week ago. <laughs> um, that helped me out. Like, do you mean emotionally or? Yeah, or just, just it was that you remember that was really sort of powerful for you. You know, I really just read the articles. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, when I was overseas. And even came back to when you came back to. I'm going to say no on the overseas. I think I, it was, it, that's not a good headspace for reading. I yeah. was too busy. And I think my job, it was, it was pretty intense and it was pretty stressful. So I wasn't going through much transformation internally. Right. Uh, that's my experiences. When I got home, I probably took a step back intellectually. Like I could barely finish a crossword puzzle hmm. having been in the military for a while. And I was really focusing on getting my prereqs done for med school, which is more scientific writing and bio and chem, really dry stuff. I'd say this year, after finishing residency and actually becoming like a practicing attending and doing my job has been my first real foray back into reading. And I think my, my new year's resolution for 2020 was to read a a book a month. I was going to read 12 books this year and they had to be non-medically related. Hmm. And I've actually stuck to it and it's been a lot of fun. So I've really, I don't think anything helped me out to be honest. I think my wife helped me. I think learning a little patience helped me. I think becoming a dad absolutely transformed me. In terms of literary stuff, though, this year it's been a lot of fun. Um, just reading things that aren't medicine. Are you, reading, are you reading nonfiction or fiction? Mostly nonfiction. Um, I did mention Marcus Aurelius because I did read Meditations this year, and that is, whew, <laughs> loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, read Dostoevsky for the first time this year. Also difficult having little context based on, on that historically, but uh, also really amazing stuff just on the human condition. And um, Crime and Punishment was something I read while I was deployed during a, a coronavirus task force response. I was sent to Texas to respond on there. So I was reading that. It's funny you mentioned the whole 
I had surgery and I tried reading Walden. That was a horrible idea. It was a little on the nose because I was, A, it was right as COVID happened. I was the last surgery day before they shut the whole everything down. So I was stuck at home recovering from surgery. Yeah, I was kind of I was kind of happy about that. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna have time to read all this stuff. I'm like, I've never read Walden. That was a horrible idea. That was like way too. <laughs> First of all, I'm isolated. The world is isolated. I'm reading a book on isolation. Like I was like, nope, I can't do this right now. I need <laughs> too much. Um so did you switch it up? I did. I, I was reading too much meat and potatoes and not enough dessert, like nothing mm-hmm. fun. So I, I did switch it up and I read something fun after that. And then I went back to kind of more meat and potatoes. So I, Dostoevsky, I read Metamorphosis again. I hadn't read that in a while. Stephen Crane read Badge of Courage, which is an interesting book for all soldiers. I think they should read that. I found a book that I just started, which I like, and it's a little nerdy. It's about all the elements, but a more of a narrative version of all the elements and how they were discovered and kind of the historical context. So it's kind of fun. And it's based on the periodic table, but it's called like periodic tales, T-A-L-E-S. Like ah. period. Yeah, so periodic table. And it's it's kind of a fun read, especially if you're a little bit of a sciencey nerd. And I've always liked general chemistry. Um, I've always thought that the way Mendeleev organized the periodic table is kind of a cool anecdote. Because the story goes that he dreamt like everybody, they had they had discovered all these elements in atoms, but no one had ever figured out how to organize it. Mm-hmm. And the way the story goes is, I think that he he had a dream where all the elements essentially like danced into a formation to those rows that we we commonly know. And I've always that like that's a fantastical idea that that's how it really happened. And if it did, that's so cool. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I've enjoyed uh, reading some some non medical literature this year. That's been that's been really enjoyable. Nice. But well, I, that answer went way differently than I expected, but it, it really it went to a cool uh, a cool area. So I'm I'm happy I asked it that way, even though it did totally didn't go the way I uh, the way <laughs> I anticipated it might. No, nope. unfortunately, um, uh, I did not get any self help. I had to slog through it for a bit, and it was painful. Um, and I think looking inward and and really focusing on my relationship with my wife and looking at my relationship with my family and really cherishing my friends when I was going through that adjustment period of, of going from being out of the military and kind of having anger and anxiety about my own self-worth like that, that was a tough journey, but I think I was more interpersonal stuff that got me through that than, than anything internal. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in service in active service that, that sort of clicked for you? Like was, I I mean, we could have asked this earlier that, That um... there were a number of formative events. There were less formative people, like there were less people that had an impact on me Mm -hmm. because you meet so many different people in the military. And it's not that you just meet them, you have to work with them. There's no other business, corporation, club, group sports there's no other operation i can think of where you're going to be put in a situation where you have to deal with so many people that are unlike you and you don't just have to work with them like you have to function mm-hmm. there's no room for bickering i mean it happens but you're going to be forced to work with people that you would otherwise never be friends with mm-hmm. and you become very close with these people through either shared misery or just you know the function of the military and there's something to be said about that it really does open your eyes to the fact that if you put two people in a 
closed room for long enough, like they're going to become friends or they're going to kill each other. <laughs> Most of the time they'll become friends because I believe people are good. And that's great because it gives you the, the strength to just kind of approach people in a different way. So I didn't have too many formative people, but I had a lot of events that happened that really shaped who I became afterward. Some good, a lot bad, some, some pretty sad experiences, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, my dear friend, uh, who's no longer with us, he, he knew that I had a lot of potential and he was the first one who said, you need to get out. Mm. He was the one who said, you really should go to medical school. And oddly enough, that was one of the few people whose, whose words have resonated with me over time. And someone that I've tried to kind of live up to that expectation. It's always been a centering thing. It was certainly through medical school. Uh, I went to medical school in Oregon. He was from Oregon. Mm. And it was never that far away from my heart to be like, remember why you're here. Yeah. Like, that's a good reminder. You know, there was no, all those bad habits when you're an undergrad or when you're a young man, you don't have any responsibility. None of that never crept in, not even once. There was never a moment of, of doubt. There was never a moment of, oh, I can slack off. Never, not for a second, because I knew what I wanted. And I knew that I was sort of living for him a little bit and living that his memory kind of grounded me, but it also reminded me mm-hmm. there's no, you don't get it. This is your second chance. Mm-hmm. There's no third chance. There's no lateral move from this. There's nothing to fall back on. Yeah. This is your chance. Go get it. There's no, t- people talk about waiting for doors to open. Once you walk through the door, you've made your decision you need to go (laughs) you don't get to go back like go go get it if you find out you don't want it fine if i had gone through med school and it didn't work out and it wasn't what i really wanted and i wanted something else fine but at the time it was nope this is your path this is the door you wanted go get it stop stop dicking around and go get it and that was a real easy thing for me to to use as like motivation. Hmm. I imagine it's the same for a lot of people in jobs that they might not like, but they're like, no, the goal isn't the job. The goal is because I want this, this, or this, or trying to provide for my family. But essentially the motivation is the same, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't like medical school. Medical school sucked. (laughs) That's not why. It's really fun. What are you talking about? Hey, there are some people who just want to be professional students their whole lives and get that next degree. I think me. That ain't me. Well, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks. For, you reminded me of some old stuff too that I was uh, not expecting. This has but been was fun. I mean, this is fun to just, I mean, connect with you on a deeper level, um, which I mean, I've, I've failed in, in, in my uh, responsibility, my responsibilities as a friend of not coming to see you. And I, we haven't seen each other in a long, long time. And now we're in a place where we just, we kind of can't. I know. So it's good to see you. Even yeah. though the people that are listening to this can't see you, I can see you. And it's good to catch up with you in this way, like we would, you know, sitting around uh, a uh, fire pit, me not having any chew. Um, 
<laughs> we could talk about that story uh, another time. Of uh, no, not needed. Me getting sick uh, <laughs> of trying. You, you bravely getting sick, knowing what was going to happen. <laughs> that was that was true friendship. Just sacrificing your gut. And we'll tell. Well, let's tell that story. So it was your birthday. My birthday. It was my and- parents' old house, and we went in the we went in the jacuzzi to just kind of hang. And you threw a chew in as a present to me. Because you know it. all wanted me to. And I said, I will get sick. I promise you. And you did. And, and did. it was so funny. You leapt out. <laughs> you leapt out of the spot like there was a freaking shark in there. And you ran to the plants and you barfed in my mom's plants. And we all thought it was just like, we weren't laughing at you. We were, we were proud of you. It was like a, wow, he did that for us, man. That's awesome. We love you. Uh, and uh, you know what? I do love you, man. You're 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 a great friend. You always have been. And don't ever ever question the fact that we haven't seen each other in a while cuz friendships two people, man. You know, we both get busy and I don't care how long it takes for us to to hang out cuz I know we will. We will. That's all that matters. Is there anything else since we're on a podcast? Is there anything else you want to say? You want to leave with the listeners sort of before before we go cuz we've sure. heard a lot, but Anything else you could think of that you'd want to say? It's only because we're being nostalgic. I, I was a bit of a smartass when we were younger, and I think our yearbook quotes when we were 18 and morons, I couldn't come up with anything poignant, and I repeated something that Bob had told me and joked about his whole life. I said, as good as anything. We'll see if it works. And I did it. And, and my yearbook quote, I think, when we were in seniors in high school was his old joke, wherever you go in life, there you are. There you are. <laughs> the man wasn't wrong. <laughs> this is the curse of my dad. <laughs> Just comes back around and haunts me with how accurate some of that stuff is. It sounds like a Geico commercial right now. <laughs> maybe, but maybe that minimizes the point. Like, hey, that's okay. Wherever you go in life, there you are. Doesn't mean that's where you're going to be tomorrow, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. To be present. I can actually look at you right now and be present with my friend. That's that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, our phones are off. We have do not disturb on our computers, which we figured out. And uh, we're present to each other for an hour and a half or, or a little bit more. Um, and, and I haven't heard a dog bark or a child who requires attention. That's pre- that is pretty remarkable. Neither have I. My, my door's locked and I've let everyone know, but... Still, the fact that it hasn't happened is pretty... Which means one of them is probably in dire need of assistance. For sure. For for (laughs) sure. For sure. But like, as you said, when we leave this room, we get to be present to them and that's it. We get to be present. Yeah, That's the best part about being a dad. Wherever you go... I I totally forgot that you did that quote. Now I totally remember. I didn't remember it until just now. (laughs) If it wasn't for all of Bob's, you know, Bobisms. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I want to say is uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to find yourself in a point where you're actually content. I never thought I would get there. I never thought I'd get there at 40 when I did. Mm-hmm. And yet, I'm already thinking about what, what 50 might look like. Mm-hmm. I'm remembering what my dad tells me like, hey, how you treat yourself in your 40s is how you're going to live in your 50s. That's what's, that's what's resonating in my brain right now. Even though I'm happy, I'm still thinking like, hey, where do what what do I want next? And I'd rather base all my next actions on what do I want and not just 
Mm-hmm. What do I think is supposed to happen? And that's an amazing feeling to be like, hey, I can do just about anything. If I want to retire at 55 or earlier, like there's a way to do that. There's a path. Just got to figure it out. It goes right back to what your mom... You're going to be 39-something. You're going to be 60. You're going to be right? 50. You're, you're going to be 50. You're going to be 60. So how do you want to be? Do you, What kind of 50-year-old do you want to be? What do you yeah. want to be doing? How do you want to look? How do you want to feel? Yeah. You're going to be I, it. You might as well take care of what that's going to look like ahead of time. And and that's not angst-provoking for the first time in my life, you know? Mm-hmm. When you're when you're young and you like worry about the future, like it's a really scary thing. But now I'm at the point where, again, I'm not an optimist. I'm a cynic. Let's, <laughs> let's be clear. But the idea that 50 might be better than 40, mm-hmm. well, of course it can if you do the right things in your 40s. If you if you mold that that clay the way you the way you actually want to mold it, yeah. it's going to yeah, be a you, piece of clay. Yeah, you can mold yourself. You can become the person you want to be. You just have to know what you want and be Start comfortable with that. with that. Yeah. Start with what you want, and then you can mold who you want to be. And you're never too old. And don't be afraid to let someone else scuff up your clay a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You'll be all right. It's clay. You can mold it again. Yeah, you can do it again. Yeah. We can do this again. I hope so. Let's we, we'll do a round two at some point and um, get get deeper on some of these topics. But this I has been it. this has been awesome, Jay. And uh, thank you for taking some of the the time uh, to that you you know you get on your day off to spend with me. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to help support it. The best way to do so is to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only do I read every one of them, but leaving a review will hopefully help increase the visibility of the podcast, which means that it will help reach other listeners that are also trying to discover what it means to live a full life. Additionally, part of the reason for creating the podcast was to start a conversation with others around the world. So if you'd like to connect, please visit me at gregberard.com. That's G-R-E-G-B-E-R-A-R-D.com and sign up for my newsletter. Not only will you be up to date on the latest podcasts and guests, but you'll also receive my personal blog, shared resources, and other media that I plan on releasing over time. The email you receive will also come from my personal email address, so I'm happy to have a dialogue personally by responding directly. Lastly, I'd love to connect with you on Twitter and Instagram, and all of my social handles are available on my website, gregberard.com. Thanks for listening.